Hi folks and thanks for listening to this Tortoise Shack podcast. A little bit of housekeeping before we kick off, you know what I'm about to ask you. I need you to click the link that says patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack. It is at the top of the podcast you're listening to right now. The Tortoise Shack has no ads, no sponsors, but relies entirely on listeners to pay it forward and keep it free for everyone. So if you get something out of what we do, please give something back. It'll only take you a couple of minutes, but it'll help carve out that bit of space we need to continue to have those conversations that we don't hear enough of across other mainstream platforms. Thanks so much for the support, the feedback, reviews, subscribing, sharing, letting people know. But I'd really urge you to click that link at the top of the pod and help keep this show on the road. Thanks again and enjoy the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Shrapnel Podcast. Um, I'm Sam McElveen and my co-host Gareth is with me as always. How are you doing today, Gareth? Uh, not too bad, Sam. How are you? I'm, I'm good. Uh, we're recording this on a Sunday morning stroke lunchtime kind of time there because the guy that we have on today is probably sick and tired of talking to the people at the minute. Probably needs two weeks away on an island by himself. Um, but yes, so today is is Martin Doyle. Um, he's the books editor of the Irish Times, um, and he's also the author now of a newly released book, Dirty Linen, The Troubles in My Home Place, which both me and Gareth have read through. Um, I'm going to put on record, first of all, that a lot of this was very uncomfortable for me. Um, and in the fact that I have to face up to some home truths about things that were perpetrated in, in the name of loyalism. Um um, of which, as Gareth and everybody else are listening, knows that I'm, I'm fiercely defensive of, but we sort of have to own this and own the dirty linen that we have uh, and somehow try and sort of, not make amends, but sort of rectify this. Um, so, Martin, thank you for joining us. Pleasure. Thanks for having me on, Sam. Yeah, thanks, Martin. Good to meet in the virtual world. Cheers, Gareth. Likewise, as you know, I'm a fan of your work. I'm back a few years, whatever. Like So um, it's thank great you. to boot on the other foot. Thank you. And um, Sam wasn't totally honest about the reason why we're doing this at lunchtime. He doesn't actually know the real reason why we're doing this at lunchtime. It's because Forrest are playing Aston Villa at two o'clock. So I have to get off to watch Forrest get beaten again. We so, all have- yeah, well, I mean, I was going to bring up the sort of fact that you support an underdog, but you're not really an underdog anymore. Manchester Pet- City. Yeah, Petro Billionaires, as you described the owners <laughs> of the book. <laughs> point when i started supporting them their celebrity fan was not the gallagher brothers it was eddie large so yeah. <laughs> we struggle too absolutely i'm, I'm, no I'm absolutely devastated to know that i'm, I'm basing my day around not the forest not to <laughs> mention that rangers are in a, in a semi-final today but it's forest like it's okay <laughs> this is where we're going with this our friendship is in danger gareth i'm telling you it always is it always teeters in the brink sam <laughs> it does it does i'm going to start off with a small quote um it's at the beginning of the book, and it sort of struck me how how personal and how sort of in-depth it was. Um, and it, the, the quote is, The dead, far from being gone, remain as powerful as part of the community. How we think about the dead and the stories we tell about the relationship between the dead and the living are central to imagining new forms of community and narratives of, of nationhood. And he talk, goes on. To, Martin goes on to talk about um, their precious and painful. And it's like walking barefoot on diamonds. And to me, that rung very true. That that's what memories are. You cherish them, you love them, you hold them in your heart. But on the other hand, they can inflict some of the deepest pain that we keep reliving. Um, Martin, that, that was quite powerful. Um, but it's, it forms the basis of, of what comes after in the book. Do you, do you want to expand on that at all? Yeah, so the guy you're quoting from there is actually, like I'm quoting Benedict Anderson, who's the Anglo-Irish author of Imagined Communities. And I think, you know, I believe that what he says is true. Um, And that bit about, you know, memories being as painful as walking on diamonds, like, you know, they're painful and they're precious. So, you know, I'm coming from um, a personal place um, in more than one way writing this book because... Um, my my wife Nikki passed away ten years ago next um, weekend from cancer, and obviously that's very different from the complicated grief of the people that I'm talking to in this book, who have either been horribly maimed in the conflict or lost loved ones in the conflict. People from both sides of the community, but 
it gives me an understanding of of what you know of what loss is and how important memories are and how your life is divided up into a before and an after by the loss of a loved one by that bereavement and that that's something that you know stays with you for the rest of your life so you know that's why it's personal to me it's also personal to me because i'm writing i've written this book about a place that i'm from i'm a I'm a journalist with the Irish Times. I'm books editor, as I think you mentioned. But this isn't me, you know, um, parachuting into the parish of Tullalish. I'm from there. I grew up there. The people that I'm writing about, the people that I'm interviewing, are people that I went to school with, or the parents of people that I went to school with. And so, you know, it's it's intensely personal. The other thing I'd like to say is that it's particular as well the way that I wrote the book. Because having been an arts journalist for 30 years, you know, my background is not so much um, writing about uh, murders and the conflict and so forth. It's more like, you know, my background is more the arts, but also nonfiction, therefore interviewing historians and so forth about the conflict. And also when I was in the Irish Post for nine years in the in the 90s, that coincided with the the developing peace process, if you like. And also I became deputy editor and editor at that time. So I, I moved from interviewing writers like Owen McNamee and Roddy Doyle and so forth to interviewing um, some of the players in in the conflict who are working to um, bring it to an end. People like Jerry Adams, Martin McGuinness, David Irvin, David Trimble, um, John Hume, uh, Seamus Mallon. So, you know, it is a kind of a, a coming home for me, if you like, um, writing this book and the way the way that it's written is very personal. I kind of I like to emphasize that, um, you know, I'm very conscious of maybe not so much for for listeners to this podcast, but maybe for a wider audience or a southern audience, it might be, oh, no, not another troubles book. Do we really need one? And I kind of think what I've tried to do is something, you know, a little bit different or maybe significantly different by by drawing you know as much on kind of you know poets like long michael longley and seamus heaney and paul muldoon and i'm not dragging them in because paul muldoon's father um grew flax to the other side of um portadown from my parish um seamus heaney um i'm sure he was surrounded by fields of flax growing up he wrote lintwater which gives the epigraph to uh, to my book, Dirty Linen, because he uses the stench of um, the lint holes where the flax was broken down in water and it produced this horrible smell. And he used that as a metaphor for the sectarianism that tainted the North. Um, and Michael Longley, of course, he wrote a poem about the, the massacre at King's Mill. Um, but he also wrote love poetry based on the linen industry. This is like another kind of thread running through my book because Tullalish, as well as, you know, being a place where 20 people, more than 20 people died violently during the Troubles, it's also a place that was the heartland of the linen industry, which is, to me, far more defining of the North than, say, Harlan and Wolf, the shipyards, which is specific to Belfast, whereas the linen industry was province-wide. Um, the farmers grew the flax. Um, locals kind of either wove the wove the linen from the flax or they either in their own homes or in when the industry industrialized in the big linen mills that grew up along the ban. My own grandfather, he worked in a bleach green just down the road from where my parents still live in Hall's Mill. And so I kind of use that as a kind of a metaphor for for the descent into communal violence of the troubles as the linen industry declined and left behind these big empty mills. Similarly, loved ones are, you know, neighbours of mine in the parish of Tullalish, um, say the O'Dowds, um, which is where this kind of all started. Their farmhouse was abandoned. And to me, it's like a kind of a kind of a mirror image of the abandoned linen mills along the banks of the barn. I think it's really interesting, Martin, that you've approached it this way from a bi biographical perspective. And, you know, you mentioned there about Southern audiences saying potentially, you know, another book about the Troubles, we don't need this. But I know there was certainly a feeling like that about 10 years ago. 
But I think with books like yours and people coming at this history from a different angle, there is this room for, for fresh perspectives and you've provided that and you've rightly received a lot of praise for this book and particularly from Fergal Keane, who's given it the ultimate praise. For me, it's interesting because as somebody from North Belfast, which was obviously impacted heavily by the Troubles and Sam knows this coming from the Shankle, we we do tend to be very Belfast-centric in our understanding of the conflict and, and, and the North and almost see Belfast as a microcosm of the, the conflict here. But actually, Tullalish and Lawrencetown and, and the whole area that you write about and, and what happened there is a microcosm and, and that's the way you approach it. I love the term that you use at the start. You talk about wanting to take a polyphonic approach. Can you talk a wee bit more about that? Because I think that's what makes this unique and and sort of fresh. I think, you know, as books editor of the Irish Times, you know, it's a job I came to relatively late in life. And, you know, I I like to think I approached it with a certain humility. Like, you know, I don't think I am the great I am or the, the, you know, there's lots of kind of, stuff about gatekeepers and all the rest of it whatever like but you know to me if i'm a gatekeeper it's a gate that i'm more than happy to open and i've kind of tried in my journalism as books editor of the irish times to make um the church of irish literature a very broad and welcoming one um so in other words i use the kind of the you know the uh the irish times website not just the the books pages to kind of maybe give a platform to, you know, to writers who might otherwise not have featured in its pages before. And I think, you know, all to the good. So Polyphonic, uh, for example, you know, it's funny, like you write the book and then you start thinking about, you know, what exactly is it? You know, I wouldn't say I set out with this vision or whatever, but looking at it now with my kind of literary hat on, I'm kind of thinking of books like John Healy's No One Shouted Stop, which is about emigration. So it's telling the story of emigration, mostly from the south, from a very local town, from his own home village um, in the west of Ireland. Don Ryan's um, The Spinning Heart, it's a, it's a novel, or it's a really interconnecting inter uh, series of, of stories, and it's the story of how the, the Celtic Tiger died and how basically the, the financial crash um, affected one community in Tipperary, where he's from. So, you know, I didn't want to write just my story. I wanted to tell the stories of everyone in my parish that was affected by the conflict, and not just Catholics, but Protestants, not just sit or you know civilians, um, but also, um, you know, I interviewed the son of a of an RUC reservist who was killed. I interviewed the son of one of three Protestant civilians who were killed in the Guildford um, pub bombing in. 1975, New Year's Eve 1975, just before the Odeides were murdered. Um, I interviewed two survivors of um, a bomb explosion in Newry, which targeted three people who worked for British Telecom, but who were also members of the Territorial Army. And so, you know, my ambition is to, like, I think when I started out, somebody said, you know, if I were you, I would just concentrate on your own community, the people that you know, the kind of, you know, your story, if you like. And I felt very strongly I didn't want to do that. I wanted to kind of tell the story in the round. Like the parish of Tullalish or Lawrencetown, my village, and Guildford both lie on the River Ban, um, which is, you know, has the, the Ban has been sort of used as a kind of a, a fault line, if you like, for describing the northwest of the Ban, more Catholic, more rural, east of the Ban, more predominantly Protestant industrial. You know, I grew up along the banks of the ban and there you know catholics and protestants live side by side Lawrencetown might have been predominantly catholic guildford more 50 50 tullalish predominantly protestant lenaderg predominantly protestant but people lived and worked um even went to primary school and secondary school you know alongside each other and that created a, a kind of a different like you know we, we definitely didn't live in ghettos and uh, we didn't live in segregated areas and so there was definitely a different fabric to um, the community um, that I grew up in. Um, like Bobby Harrison, you know, he, he was born, grew up and was murdered in the village where, um, where he's from. Um, and, you know, he, he had many Catholic friends and, and 
you know, I give the example, for example, of, you know, his wife's best friend where he grew up in, in Tullalish was Catholic. So she would go to early morning mass on a Sunday at half eight in Lawrence time. And Mrs. Harrison would go to the Church of Ireland service at half 11 in Tullalish. In between, they would meet at Mrs. McInerney's house and they would have tea and buns and whatever and catch up on the week's gossip. And Bobby, as well as being an OUC reservist, he had been in the B-Specials. He had been in the Ulster Defence Regiment. These uniforms mean different things to different people and they represent different things to different people. But he was also the longest serving nurse in Banville Hospital in Guildford for you know people with intellectual disabilities. Um, and so he was a nurse by profession and he actually, you know, whenever he visited, you know, when Mr. McInerney was dying of cancer, um, you know, Bobby Harrison was with him right at the end because he was a nurse as well. And that's just an example that, you know, you can't pigeonhole people. You can't just sort of see the uniform they were and define them by that. People wear different uniforms. Um, and another thing about this book that I wanted to do, I didn't want just to sort of write the story of how people died. I wanted to write the story of who they were, how they lived, which is far more important. Um, so Bobby, as well as all the, you know, the uniforms that he wore, he also was a very talented singer. And, you know, he played music in, in a Guildford band. In fact, after he was killed, there was uh, um, the name of the band was changed to the Bobby Harrison uh, Memorial Band, um, which, again, is important in, in how, you know, people are remembered, which is a, th a thread running through this book. Um, but I also make the point that in the 1960s, um, he had a, a daughter, he and his wife had a daughter who, you know, tragically died. She was, you know, born with with a condition um, and after that he wasn't able to sing in the church choir for a year so again and again i find this thread in the book of people who suffered violent death in their families during the troubles who had already suffered enormously for example um the kearns's um eamon and sheila kearns that i interviewed um two of their sons uh, were murdered on the day of their sister Roisin's 11th birthday, 30 years ago last last weekend. Um, but their first child uh, was stillborn, Andrea. And so what I'm trying to say, our communicate, I guess, is life is hard enough without imposing, you know, the unnecessary burden um, of violent death, which the Troubles did on so many families in this island. Yeah, I mean, I, I want to go back to the the Central Bar bombing in Guildford. Yeah. And recently at an event that I attended, you were speaking about the book as well. Um, and there was a young person who mentioned it was from Guildford and didn't know that that bomb had went off or nothing had happened there. Um, and I think that's why these books are important. We don't need to drag it all up and rehash it. But what we need to do is recognize that it did happen for the next generation to look at and learn from with fresh eyes that maybe aren't tainted like our own from yeah. the experiences that we've gained, but from eyes that are, born after the 98 ceasefires and have had a different upbringing to what we had? It's one, of the, it's one of the sort of most, I don't know, symbolic or disturbing things for me. When you Google, so Guildford in my parish is G-I-L-F-O-R-D. It lies between Bambridge, about halfway between Bambridge and Portadown. So three people lost their lives in a no-warning INLA bomb in that pub on New Year's Eve 1975. But if you Google Guildford pub bombing, it doesn't bring it up. It brings up the Guildford pub bombing in Surrey. And I kind of think, how symbolic is that of how those people's, you know, you know, the commonplace atrocities are such that one can, you know, erase another. Um, three people died for what? Not even to be remembered, not even to be kind of picked up by the Google algorithm, but rather to be erased by it. And I kind of think that's that says something about, you know, all the suffering that we lived through that barely moved the dial in terms of, you know, you know, changing the constitutional status of the North or whatever way you want to describe it. Um, all those lives, all those lives had weight and meaning. And I think it's really important to remember them and sort of, you know, I've written a book about the parish of Tullalish, um, but you know, I'd like to think that maybe it's, you know, it could be an exemplar and people will write books about their own parishes or their own areas. 
because I can't, I don't, you know, I don't think you can remember people's lives enough that were snuffed out in that way. I think people, I get the very strong sense talking to the people that I talk to in this book that, you know, they've lost out on so much, they lost their loved ones. But also, I think a lot of them feel that, you know, they were left after a certain time to bear that weight alone. You know, they, like I say in the book, they did such heavy lifting for us all in the sense that, you know, they felt the weight of the coffin of a loved one on their shoulder, biting into their shoulder. And over time, sure, everybody turns up to the funeral. You know, in the Catholic tradition, there's a month's mind where a lot of people will also turn up. You know, the first anniversary, a few will be there. But over the years, that will dwindle, I think, to just, you know, the immediate family. And maybe, you know, really close friends. And I think what we all lived through, you know, we we suffered collectively, but really, you know, some people suffered far more than others. Like there's book there's families in this book like the Feenies who suffered terribly, the O'Dowds. Um, and I kind of think, you know, they bear such an enormous weight. I think, you know, the wider community owes them a debt, really. And I think we should bear some of that burden collectively by having some, you know, national or, you know, community-wide form of commemoration. Like, you know, there's been talk recently, I guess, of, you know, and if there were to be a reunited Ireland with the 12th of the Jul- July still to be, a, uh, would still be a national holiday, for example, you know, how do we kind of respect both traditions on this island? You know, whatever about that, I would say, you know, what we really need, and I think we need it now, and the families deserve it now, is a national day of mourning. I know we have Remembrance Day for the dead of the First and Second World War, and I have absolutely no issue with that. Like Eamon Kearns, who lost his two sons, his birthday is actually the 11th of the 11th. And he says, you know, he watches those Remembrance Day services, and he weeps for people who are bereaved or remembering their lost loved ones, be it parents or grandparents. But he says, you know, I'm told I've got to move on. You know, church and state are saying, move on, leave, you know, um, your grief or whatever behind. But he won't forget. How can he forget the loss of his two loved ones, his sons? And I think, you know, we as a community owe it to people like Eamon Kearns and everybody that features in Dirty Linen to remember... um, just what they went through. And I think that can be healing. I think, you know, you've had the legacy bill forced through, you know, which achieved the rare achievement of uniting everybody in the North in opposition to it because, you know, it abandons, it protects, you know, maybe um, veterans in the British Army perhaps, but it abandons everyone else. And, like, I think it was Jim Shannon, the DUP MP, that I saw almost breaking down in the House of Commons, expressing his, um, you know, unhappiness with um, with that legislation. So it, it's something that affects not just Catholics or nationalists or Republicans, it affects Protestants, Unionists, Loyalists too. I think, you know, what you've touched on there is really important when you talk about, you know, the victims and people who are left behind have a, have a story to tell, and you know time doesn't just stop when the newspaper article is written about a death or a murder, and that's something that's always struck me about this, Martin, because you know going back to the stuff I've written on recently around the anniversary of Bloody Friday, I was always struck by the story of um, Kay McGurdy, who um, spoke into the Way of Trauma Centre about her experience, her husband Jimmy had been killed shortly after Bloody Friday with another man, Frank Clore. Um, They've been killed by the UDA. And, you know, when you talk about compounding this unnecessary misery on people who've already suffered tragedy, it just brings me back to that story because only a couple of months before Jimmy McCurdy was murdered, he and his wife had suffered a miscarriage. And, you know, to, to alleviate that tragedy and to try and make life that bit easier... I think he'd been working in a bar and he decided then to take up um, ownership of a fancy goods shop. So he did this because he wanted to spend more time with his wife who'd suffered this um, tragedy. And, you know, only two weeks after they acquired the shop, 
he was brutally abducted and murdered. And you know, she talks in her testimony about the you know the the child who would have had a name. I can't remember the name offhand. Apologies for that. But that the child sort of cried out, you know, that her, you know, that the father had been killed, and it's just this sort of. To me, it's it's when you read that that sort of account, you, you can see things in the newspaper. Even lost lives, I think, only go so far because because of the amount of space that's given over. But when you delve into these lives that have already suffered these tragedies, and and that's why I think you know a book like Dirty Linen is so important because it gives room. I don't know if excavates the right word, but it gives room to excavate these sort of experiences and sort of give them the sort of platform that they deserve and. It, when you talk about the legacy builder, it is important because anybody who, you know, sort of drafts legislation like that should be reading books like this and realizing that these are the people who are actually impacted. And it's not just people who suddenly suffered this loss during the troubles. It's people who've maybe suffered a tragedy in, in the immediate um, preceding weeks of, of a loved one's murder. And also, you know, for myself, a lot of the murders that happened in the early seventies, a disproportionate amount of those people who were killed in Belfast were people who had been in psychiatric care, very vulnerable human beings. So, you know, I think we need to sort of understand more about the victims and their families than what we already have done. So, again, that's why I think Dirty Linen is so important. Well, thanks for that. Um, like Talking about Bloody Friday there immediately makes me think of Jennifer McNairn, who's one of the people I interview in the book. So Jennifer and her sister Rosaline were in the Abercorn bombing um, and Jennifer lost both her legs. Her sister Rosaline lost two legs, an arm and an eye. Um, so Jennifer I interviewed because she's friends with Margaret Yemen, um, who was blinded in a no-warning IRA bomb in Bambridge, my birthplace, um, at 10 years later in 1982, in which an 11-year-old schoolboy, Alan McCrum, was killed. Um and the reason I interviewed um, both of them together, so Margaret's portrait was painted by Colin Davidson for his Silent Testimony series, which, you know, I would sort of aspire to that Dirty Lynn be sort of seen as a kind of a written version of what Colin has sought to do with Silent Testimony, which is portraits of victims, but also the families of victims to sort of show, you know, in their faces, they show in their faces the, the lines of grief. Um, I'm sorry, and then um, Jennifer McNairn. So the Abercorn bombing in which she was maimed and her sister were, was maimed, um, it inspired, if that's the word, the Bambridge sculptor Effie McWilliam to do his series um, of sculptures called Women of Belfast, Women in a Bomb Blast. And so both of them, both of these people that I interviewed, who became friends through Wave, the, the victim's charity, um, like Jennifer tells a funny story that, she said to Margaret, this is how she introduced herself, you're eating the decorations because the t- it was a Christmas dinner and the tinsel had fallen onto Margaret's plate and obviously because she had lost her sight in the bombing, she didn't know what was happening. But, you know, they have this wonderful, beautiful um, friendship, which is like, you know, I don't want this book to be understood as misery lit. It isn't. There's a lot of light and hope in it as well because... The people that like the, there are profiles in courage. I think that's actually the name of a biography of JFK. But actually, the people that I've interviewed are incredibly resilient. Obviously, they're they're incredibly hurt, and some of them are angry. Some of them are stoic. But all of them, in their own ways, are heroic in in the way that they have kind of got on with their lives despite the most awful tragedy. But sorry, back to um, the Abercorn bombing on, on Bloody Friday. Jennifer McNairn, um, maimed in an IRA, no warning bombing of the Abercorn, she thought to herself, at least, you know, now this has happened. This will never happen. They'll never do that again, will they? The day that she got out of hospital was Bloody Friday. She was sent home in an ambulance on Bloody Friday. And you can imagine what that was like navigating Belfast on a day when no warning IRA bombs were going off left, right and centre. Um, so that's that's one thing. I think that's a story that that has a has a moral to it. Um, and it's funny you talking about excavating, because I do think that so often the truth of the troubles has been buried. Some people want it buried. Some people would pour concrete over it. 
you know, you've got this incredible irony to my mind that, you know, on the one hand, you've got the legacy bill. On the other hand, you've got the the new interim chief constable of, of the PSNI, John Boucher. I pretty much shadowed him because a lot of the people I was interviewing were victims of the Glenan gang, which he has spent the last five years investigating for a report that's due out um, next year. He told me that his ambition is to bring it out for the anniversary of the Dublin and Monaghan bombings, which are also carried out by the Glenan gang. Um, but excavating. So one of the stories in my book, probably the, the story that inspired the book or gave me you know, the template, if you like, for for writing it was the story of the O'Dowds. So Barney O'Dowd was my milkman. Um, Declan O'Dowd, his son, was our coal man. And so these were people that sort of stood on our step, you know, every week, like Barney as a milkman every day. At the weekend, he would come and collect the, the week's money. And he would he wore a brown sort of shop coat and a satchel that he kind of wore around his body. And he'd allow you to kind of put your hand into his satchel and lift out a fistful of coins, which as a child was like untold riches. It was like a treasure chest. Um, so this is somebody, you know, who I knew intimately. And so his, what happened to his family, you know, really disturbed me, I guess, as a child. And after, um, after two of his sons were murdered. He lost a kidney in the shooting. His brother Joe was also murdered. This happened in the family farmhouse, which is in a very remote part of the parish in Ballydugan, a few miles outside Lurgan. Um, and the farmhouse is so remote, you know, you wouldn't even know it was there. It's off a back road to begin with, but then it's down a kind of a laneway, which is a which takes a turn or two before it comes to the house. So it's not even visible from the road. And in in fact, um the killers didn't come by road. They kind of crossed a couple of fields to get to the farmhouse, which obviously suggests, you know, some some degree of local knowledge. But, you know, the what happened with the Odides after the murders, they moved south. Um, Kathleen, the mother, was terrified that the killers would come back for the rest of her family, for her other sons. Um, and then I never saw them again. And that was... You know, that was a sort of a gap or whatever in my childhood. After I wrote a piece about growing up in the North and, and mentioning what happened to the O'Dowds, Noel, one of the sons, got in touch and said, you know, Barney was still alive. He was 98, but still sharp. Would I like to meet him? And so you can imagine how poignant that was, like meeting somebody after 40 odd years, a, you know, a figure from your childhood. And... You know, they told me their story, not just the story of what happened to um, to to those that were killed, but also Barney's story growing up. He went to the local Protestant primary school, had a lot of kind of local Protestant friends, starting the milk round. You know, he you know got a tinsmith to make little churns that he would deliver the milk in and then collect them on the way back. So kind of fascinating social history. That was that was that Barney's still alive. He just celebrated his hundredth birthday this year. But that history, that social history, will die out with him. Um, but the bit that really stuck in my mind was that when Kathleen died, the family decided this was in uh, just before the millennium and and in Christmas nineteen ninety nine. The family decided that they were going to exhume their brother's bed, bodies and rebury them beside their mother um, in County Meath. And the bit that really got me was that they did it themselves. And, you know, so it's like it's things that you find hard to imagine that stop you in your tracks and make you really kind of think, you know, what that means. And to me, that was such an act of love. I couldn't imagine doing it myself, but I can, I can, when you dwell on it, you kind of think, actually, you know, I can see how that made sense to them as a family. And I can see why they wouldn't want strangers doing it. But still, like to me, it's really spoke of the the long tale of troubles trauma, which is, you know, a line from the book, um, and it also reminds me actually, the first death in lost lives, which is like kind of a bible probably for all of us in terms of documenting everybody who was killed in the troubles. The first person documented in lost lives, they had to exhume his body because. Um, he he was killed by I think Gusty Spence and a couple of other loyalists. This is back in 1966. He was wandering the he was wandering home um, drunk, um, and you know the family insisted that he'd been shot, 
Um, but he was, you know, um, that hadn't been confirmed. He was buried. Um, but then they exhumed the body, and that only then did the the coroner confirm that he had actually died by shooting rather than beaten up or whatever. So there is a sense in which the past, you know, if you want to get to the truth, the, the, the truth has to be kind of excavated. Um, and so there's this bizarre situation where on the one hand, um, with the legacy bill, it's like the British government are pouring concrete over it or shredding files, if you like, or sort of censoring files for decades to come. And yet on the other hand, you've got John Boucher, the interim chief constable, who's been pursuing the truth with his magnifying glass for the last five years. And you kind of think, how can how can those two arms of the state, if you like, be working in harmony together? They're, they seem to be at cross purposes. Do you agree? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I would agree yeah. with that. I mean, and you also mentioned in, in your book about EHET, and, and there's some some good comment in, in there about how how underwhelming their investigations actually were on a, on a lot of instances. I mean, I, I want to rewind a wee bit, and you're talking about the young lady getting out of hospital on Bloody Friday. I mean, you also talk about in the book the shared anniversaries, maybe years apart. You talk about Claudie mm-hmm. uh, and the people killed there, and then the Miami Shoban is on exactly the same date. And, you, and the line you use, I think, it was we can't even have separate anniversaries for these atrocities. They, they, they overlap so much. Yeah. That was the day that I interviewed Jennifer McNairn and Margaret Jamin in Jennifer's house in Belfast. So, you know, these things sort of leap out at you. Like, you know, the Miami was fresh in my mind because I'd interviewed Stephen Travers, one of the survivors of the Miami Choban massacre, because not just did it happen in after they played a concert at the Castle Ballroom in Banbridge, but Stephen, after the, the atrocity, ended up moving to London and ended up co-founding two newspapers the Irish World and the Irish and Britain News, as as they became, which were the first two newspapers that I worked for as a journalist in London. So there's so many of these kind of odd connections that present themselves. Yeah. But but absolutely, your point is right. Yeah, yeah and we, we call it tit for tat here, and I think that's that's sometimes remiss of us because it, it makes it sound childish, called it tit for tat. But you, but you have incidents there where the O'Dowds are bringing their family's bodies home. And on the day that the f- people are gathering at the house, the Kings Mill massacre takes place. Um, we, we look at this and, and we, we have people, the likes of um, Robert Gibson we've had on the pod, we've got families out here calling for no retaliation. But somehow, sometimes that falls on deaf ears and the retaliation takes pl- takes place despite the family saying they don't want it. So it's this place all... Almost parts itself along on the trauma that we keep inflicting on each other. It goes back to that idea, Sam. And sorry, Martin, but you know, we talk about people having those tragedies in their lives and sort of the the, the, the troubles, violence compounding that tragedy. But then in this instance, and when we talked to Robert Gibson about that and about how he felt about the killings that were perpetrated after his father had been murdered in Bloody Friday, it just re-traumatizes those people and makes them feel you know, talk about survivor's guilt, but it's it's that guilt and, you know, it's, it's a sort of endless cycle of misery and trauma. Absolutely. But I, I, th- I think as well, you know, we do need to kind of take a beat. And even though, OK, so somebody appeals for no retaliation and there is retaliation. But what we don't know is what else might have happened if they hadn't made that appeal or even within the family circle, you know, um, like I make the, the, the point that, you know, religion gets a very bad rap in the troubles and rightly so because there were people who wore collars around their necks um on both sides who fomented violence and inspired violence you know you know ian paisley has been sort of rehabilitated um his reputation because you know he became a conciliatory figure sharing power with martin mcginnis um late in life but you know, let's make no bones about it. He was one of the progenitors of the conflict. He incited hatred against his Catholic neighbours and um, throughout his, the early part of his career. Eamon Kearns, you know, cites him coming to the Orange Hall in Bleary, near where he lived in Ballydugan, and spreading hatred among his Protestant neighbours for their Catholic neighbours. But on the other side, um, you have, you know, the incredible faith. Um, of 
uh, and Christian charity or whatever way you want to call it of families who became victims. So on the on the one hand, um, you had um, um, sorry Philip McConville talking about his mother Rosie who was um, paralyzed after coming home from bingo of all things on a minibus to Bleary. Um and he was like she lived in extreme pain for the rest of her life. Um, like Philip says, you know, it would have been better for her if she had died that night. Like what a thing for a son to feel he had to say, having witnessed his mother suffering for so many years. But he would rub his mother's legs to try and give her some relief. And he would this is him at fifteen, saying, You know, Mum, if I ever find out who did this, I'll kill them. And she said, Son, I pray for them every night. And that sort of stopped him in his tracks and made him think, you know, she's a better woman than me. Um, and uh, um, an aunt said that her, her mother um, said the rosary every night for the people who had, who had not just um, par- or par- left his, her daughter paralyzed, but had also killed her father who was on the minibus. Um, and where am I going with this? And also, sorry, Alan McCrum. Um, the young 11-year-old Protestant schoolboy who was killed in the no-warning IRA bomb in 1982 in Banbridge. His uncle Dixon, um, you know, another God-fearing man, said that, you know, he accepted what happened to Alan as God's will. Both of them appealed for no retaliation. And like I said, you know, there might have been retaliation, but who knows what greater violence might have happened. Was it not for that kind of backstop that kind of stopped the North really tipping over into the abyss. Like, we know what happened in the North, but we also know what happened in the former Yugoslavia and how extreme, how far worse um, the breakdown of society there was. So, you know, the troubles were terrible, but there came a point again and again where it looked as if it was going to spiral out of control, as in, you know, the recent anniversary of the Shankill Road bombing atrocity it looked then and then you had Graysdale and the currencies were killed around that time and several other people and it looked as if you know society was going to break down but it didn't happen and I kind of think you know it's hard to be you know specific or exact about it but I do believe that um you know the the goodness is all you can call it I guess of the majority on both sides um, was like a backstop that stopped the North sliding into barbarism. One of the most astonishing um, episodes in the book for me, and it's something I had never known, was about the friendship between uh, the Feenies, um, John Michael Feeney and uh, Brian Faulkner. Yeah, I mean it's amazing. And when when you talk about the desire for revenge, the, the the one that stood out for me was when Faulkner came to the house after John Michael had been murdered, and he said to Declan, the son, "Your father was killed by evil men, and if I could get my hands on them, I'd tear them from limb to limb." And yeah. that just jumped. I mean, that was astonishing. Another side of Faulkner that I would never have even countenanced. And then the fact that Declan then goes on to become friendly with Prince Charles, who yeah. sends sympathy to his mother, and I mean it's just. Yeah. It show. I mean, it, it show. There's talking about the complexity of of the North. That's just a, a a different level, even for me to try and comprehend. Like sport, sport has always you know created strange bedfellows or whatever. Um, and hunting maybe in particular. Um, like you know, I don't know if you're familiar with the Irish RM Somerville and Ross. It was adapted for for screen maybe back in the eighties. Was it by with Peter Bowles as the the lead character? So this is like kind of. You know, you've got the aristocracy um, hunting, shooting, fishing, but you've also got the kind of the, the local working class, if you like, who are the ones who sort of, you know, look after the horses or the, or the hounds, whatever. So John Michael Feeney, he had just got his dream job as number two in the Ivy Harriers to, of all people, Brian Faulkner. So John Michael and the family had just moved into the stables in St. Patrick looking after the hounds. And... They were a really sporting family. So John Michael's son, Jimmy, had just won the senior boxing title, um, like the All-Ireland title at his at his weight um, in the National Stadium in Dublin. That was on the Friday night. On the Sunday evening, John Michael brings Jimmy to show him off to um, some friends in Leary Darts Club a few miles away. And um, 
at some stage in the evening, Jimmy went out to go to the toilet. Like we're talking about this place was an old weaver's cottage. It was like a shebeen, really. Like so it had a darts club, it had a few tables for people playing playing cards or people just meeting for a drink. Um and Jimmy goes outside to the toilet and while he's outside, loyalist gunmen turn up, kick open the door and start spraying the room. Um and Jimmy com- Jimmy comes back just as this is happening and he can see there's no light that somebody's knocked off the lights inside. So the only available light was the muzzle flash from the gunman's weapon. And so that was by that light, he was able to describe to the RUC the color of the trousers and the shoes that the gunman was wearing. And I say in the book, you know, um, what light could be darker? What light could be darker than that emanating from the weapon that's killing your father? And that was the light that he saw by for the rest of his days. And I say that because Jimmy became an alcoholic. He was sucked into joining the official IRA, caught during an armed robbery um, with a getaway van that was actually, he had taken over from his dad at, you know, as number two to Faulkner. So he drove around the country picking up fallen stock. In other words, dead animals to feed to the hounds. And they actually used the carcasses of, and these dead cows, whatever, to hide the the money bags from a, an armed robbery of a secure car van. Um, but then later, Jimmy became an alcoholic and he ended up taking his own life. He died by suicide. So, you know, that again, to me, is the long tail of trauma. You know, Jimmy was on course to go to box in the Montreal Olympics. Instead, he ended up in Long Kesh and ended up ultimately taking his own life. Now, that's tragedy. And so what I'm trying to do in the book is sort of, you know, maybe tell the story in a little different way. Like, you know, that's that words like Declan, um, his um, John Michael's other one of his other sons, uh, Jimmy's brother. As you say, he ended up going over to England and hunting with Prince Charles and being invited to Highgrove. And there's photographs in his home of him and his wife with Charles and Camilla. Again, strange bedfellows. Um. But, you know, Declan was talking to me and he described, you know, you know, his job and going around collecting fallen stock. And that word, like, you know, I'm from the country, but, you know, these hands are, you know, they've held a pen rather than a spade. Um, And I wasn't familiar with the term and I kind of thought about it and it made me think that, you know, the North, you know, was, was like one charnel house, that we were all like all the victims of the troubles are like fallen stock, that we were treated in the same way that you can think what you like about blood sports. You know, a lot of people, you know, think it's it's wrong to kill animals for 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 entertainment or whatever. You know, I know there's other arguments about keeping, you know, foxes and whatever down. But I thought about that fallen stock and it reminded me, you know, this idea that, you know, the humans in the north were being hunted down and killed. And it reminded me of another incident that happened 30 years ago next month where two Catholics in Belfast, like a 15-year-old and a 31-year-old taxi driver, were shot dead by um, using shotguns, using big balls of shot that would be used for big, big game hunting. And you can just imagine that kind of overkill, that kind of sadism. You can imagine the kind of wounds that that inflicted on those people. And it kind of made me think, again, that just sort of reinforced this idea of, you know, humans being hunted down or humans hunting down other humans and treating them like, you know, as if they were big game hunting. And then that reminded me of a line from Shakespeare. Um, it's Gloucester in King Lear. And he says, um, what are we but flies to, you know, hold on, got it here. Sorry, I'll pull it up. So, yeah, I'll just read it. Um, so on the 5th of December 1993, the UDA murdered 15-year-old Brian Duffy and John Todd, a 31-year-old taxi driver, Belfast Catholics. They used a shotgun firing ammunition normally used for big game hunting. The coroner said that large balls of shot exacted terrible injuries to both victims. In the words of Gloucester from King Lear, as flies to wanton boys are we to the gods, they kill us for their sport. So. You know, my book is unashamedly victim-centered. You know, I'm not really fascinated by what motivates murderers, what motivates killers. Some of them are motivated by an ideology that, you know, 
um, Republican ideology, perhaps. Some of them are motivated by bigotry and sectarian hatred. You know, there's books, you know, there's a couple of books this year out actually about um, a notorious Southern murder, you know, um, the murder in the Phoenix Park by this guy, this sort of wealthy sort of Anglo-Irish guy, Malcolm MacArthur. It became known as the Gubu Murders because he ended up being caught in the apartment of the the Southern Attorney General. And uh, Charles Hockey famously said this was grotesque, unbelievable, bizarre and unprecedented. And Connor Cruz O'Brien christened Hockey Gubu after that. Um, so two people, um, a colleague of mine, Harry McGee and Mark O'Connell, um, very well regarded uh, writer, have written books about about that. Um, and that's fine. But, you know, what interests me is um, the suffering of the victims and their families and how their families cope and deal with that afterwards. Um, I think that's the more interesting story. Um, you know, that's where the humanity is. That's where, you know, um, the, the good stuff is, in my opinion. And I just wanted to sort of shine a light on on their stories. Yeah, if, if I could just jump in there, Sam. Uh, Martin, I, I totally agree. And I think it is, as, as time progresses, and we do have things like legacy legislation, it, it is the more textured and more interesting story and it's the one that needs to be heard i mean coming from the background that i come from and and you know this because you've commissioned me to write stuff for the irish times you know i've i've written on the motivations of young men joining the uh, loyalist paramilitaries the tartan gangs then i did the book with billy hutchinson which you know i think you know people didn't realize my background until it came out and you commissioned me to write that article which was really happy to do and i mean to be honest that, that book coming out with Billy sort of dovetailed with me moving back to North Belfast after years living away from North Belfast. We we bought a house back here, me and me and my partner and my child live here now. And it did it did cause me to re re-examine some of the motivations for why I became interested in the Troubles history. And basically it, it came back to trying to understand victims and, and the experiences of victims and people who were killed in North Belfast. And you know, one of one of the uh one of the uh, murders in your book that really sort of struck a nerve with me because I was familiar with it, um, having worked in the public record office, was um, Pat Campbell's murder by Robin Jackson. Now, I, I had processed that file, um, so I'd read some of that material before about, you know, the scene in the hallway. Um, the thing that always stuck with me was Margaret, his, his, his wife, having to then go to the police station and identify by putting the hand on the shoulder. Um, you know, which again, it, you know, looking back thinking you're having to identify the man who killed your husband, you know, it's not even behind glass. It's you're having to actually touch this guy on the shoulder. Yep. I mean, then all the outworkings of that and, and the sort of questions over Robin Jackson's role and, you know, what, you know, his role in the security forces and this, that, and the other, and you know, and me and Sam have had this conversation, and I know it's it's an evolving process in my head, and and from the background I come from, and from North Belfast, and I walk in these streets in North Belfast, I do, I do begin to you know revisit that idea of being a second class citizen. Now, I I I have a sort of paradoxical experience because I was privileged; I came from a middle class background. Um. You know, one of the stories in your book reminded me of, of how, how that came to be when your mom said about, you know, not wanting you to work in the shoe factory. Um, and, you know, my granny had a similar experience. She, she told my uncle, you know, she saw a guy digging the road one day and she said to my uncle, I don't want that for you. This is why education's so important. And my granny was a, a Protestant converted to Catholicism. So there's all that sort of, um, you know, sort of complexity in the, going on in the background. So I never felt like a second-class citizen until I went to Methody. And I've talked about this before. And, you know, there's there's stuff in your book that really reminded me of this and, and the sort of questions I have, conversations I have with myself. You know, when you were working in, on, in London and you came back and, you know, one of your friends from the academy said you were working for a Provo newspaper, um, it, it just brought me right back to Methody in, in the sort of mid-late 90s where... 
bizarre now, comical almost, when you look back, you know, that idea of Irishness or Catholicism being associated with provisional republicanism. I mean, I remember having a copy of The Queen is Dead by the Smiths um, and giving it back to a friend of mine who lent it to me. friend was actually from the Shankle. And another friend whose brother was in the RUC and very middle-class Protestant saw me handing this record back to other friend and he said, that's just typical of you, Mulvena. The Queen is dead. And the other the other one, which is even more farcical, was, I think it was, um, maybe, well, had a U2 CD or something. I don't know. It was a U2, one, one, one of U2's albums. And a, another friend of mine said, typical Mulvena, you know, they give all their money to the IRA. And you know it's 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 only now looking back in that and and reassessing it through the lens of your work and the sort of experiences I've had interrogating the past through a victim's perspective, I begin to wonder actually no matter what our social status was in class terms, mm-hmm. we probably always were second class citizens ultimately. There's some, like, you know, like, obviously I've got a whole chapter in the book about, you know, going, like, I passed the, I'm from a working class background, went to Bambridge Academy pa- after passing the, the 11 plus, whatever. And as I say in the book, you know, I was, it wasn't a mixed school or an integrated school. It was diluted, diluted orange. In other words, I think it was about 10% of us were Catholic and we weren't, we were admitted, but we weren't accommodated. In other words, they let us in. But they basically changed nothing to kind of, you know, acknowledge the fact that we were from a different background, a different tradition. Same as Methody. Big one. Same as Methody. Very possibly so. And it's funny, like, you know, you know, um, there's lots of the book uh, book about sort of um, IRA murders, lots about loyalist murders, whatever. And I probably, you know, I'd like to think, you know, they'd probably think, (laughs) yeah. That's that's what happened. Yeah, we did that and whatever. And you know what? If the circumstances are right, we do it again. The stuff that kind of seems to maybe get under people's skin is when you're talking about the sectarianism, the petty stuff. So, like to me, like there is a kind of a spectrum that starts with sectarian slurs and ends with assassination. But you know, it's you know, I think people from a middle class background they probably thought, oh, that Bambridge is a lovely, nice middle class town, or Bambridge Academy is a nice, respectable school, and none of that bad stuff happened there. Well, actually, it did happen. Um, and you know, like there's a story in the Belfast Telegraph recently. They picked up, they made a news story out of an uh, an episode in the book, which is Paula Jordan, who is a girl from from Lawrencetown, from my village, who's a couple of years ahead of me. She's a pillar of the community. She's been a special needs uh, school principal in Tyrone for the past 20 years. She was appointed MBE. She was actually um, invited to attend the Queen's funeral. This is how much a pillar of the community she is. And yet her career as a teacher was almost sabotaged at birth by the sectarian action of her headmaster at Bambridge Academy. Um, So... He, this is going back um, to um, the 80s, but he gave her such a bad reference. You know, he lied and basically said she played truant, she was disruptive in class, so that she wouldn't get um, a place on a course. And she didn't get a place, even though people with lesser grades um, did. And the, you know, the irony of it is that he, he'd actually written a personal letter to her thanking her for giving up her free time to teach or to sort of volunteer at the special needs school in Bambridge, which his own child attended. You know, I can't get my head around that. But, you know, this is the stuff that went on. And, you know, I think we need to sort of, you know, you might say, oh, why break up that stuff? But actually, if nobody ever knew it happened and nobody did know outside maybe her, the close family circle, well, then, you know, history is always, you know, history and revisionism, they go hand in hand. History is always being revised as new information comes out. And I kind of think it's important to shine a light in some of these sort of darker corners. And of course, don't get me wrong, discrimination is bad. Indiscriminate murder is so much worse. And that's why the chapter about the discrimination I experienced at the Bambridge Academy is followed by the chapter about the murder of Alan McCrum. He was an 11-year-old schoolboy, two years younger than me. He didn't get a chance to kind of, you know, put his school years behind him and make a career for himself. You know, he was murdered by the IRA. And I think that's obviously a far greater um, crime and atrocity. Yeah, I think I, I'll close out with just a couple of comments on what Gareth said there as well. Um, 
Uh, I also found that grammar school didn't make accommodation for those of working class children as well. Um, you, you got a school uniform grant that barely covered the cost of the blazer, never mind anything else, um, and they made no allowances on it. Yeah. Um, also, the, the the class thing that we were discussing there about second class citizens, I know, I know Gareth... Um, We've spoken this a whole lot, but one of the quotes that sort of strikes me all the time when we talk about this is the one by um, Hugh Smith, the former Lord Mayor and PUP leader. Um, and it goes, historically, unionist politicians fed their electorate the myth that they were first class citizens. And without question, people believed them. Historically, Republican nationalist politicians fed their electorate the myth that they were second class citizens. And without question, people believed them. In reality, the truth of the matter was that we were all Protestant and Catholic we're third class citizens and none of us realised it. And I think that sort of feeds into your, we were hunted for sport. This was yeah. an open safari ground for a lot of people. Yeah. And we um, people were used and people were encouraged to do things on each other. Yeah, there, to there, kill them fields. There, there's a line in, or there's, there's like, there's a couple of things that sort of strike me having written it yet. And then, you know, like, it's not as if I'm reading it back loving, loving myself. You read it back because you've got to cut 30,000 words or you've got to proofread it, blah, blah, blah. And so in that process, some things start to emerge that you didn't even notice first time around. And one of the things that emerged for me was just like, it's a, it's a variation of what you're saying there, Sam. And I remember, and I, I write about my mum cleaning um, or, you know, yeah, cleaning the front step in our house in Miller Park in Lawrencetown was a council house. And it was cement, but she, you know, she cleaned it with vim or whatever else on a scrubbing brush as if it was marble, just to kind of make it sort of, you know, that bluey white thing or whatever that would last a couple of days. And Richard Beatty um, from Guildford, um, you know, he spoke about um, his mother doing the same. And this this idea of, you know, what did, I think Richard says something like, what did those little houses have? They had nothing. These little mill cottages. I think he describes. I think the the step was red. It was some kind of whatever, and there was some kind of you know cleaning product you could get to sort of you know to keep it sort of looking spick and span. But like he makes the point that you know we we all lived in these kind of you know very modest houses or whatever. Um, so the, yeah, there was no privilege on either side there for sure. Um, and then that idea of the, the front step and then how those front step doorsteps that, you know, the mothers scrubbed and cleaned and how they were sullied by, you know, gunmen like, you know, coming to the front door of the back door of the O'Dowds or the front door of Pat Campbell and shooting, you know, shooting him dead. A shop steward, a man who sort of, you know, who basically run like a citizen's advice bureau from his own home in the evening and during the working day was a shop steward in down shoes. You know, this is a man looking out for everybody and, and you know, um, representing the working class. And yet he was the victim of a sectarian assassination. Um, what was the other point that I was going to make? Um, oh, yeah. The other thing that sort of came to me in writing this book was the, the motif of the handkerchief. Um, so the first job my mother had was working in Blaine's factory, a handkerchief factory in, in Blairy. Um, and I just thought, like, how symbolic, like, you know, making handkerchiefs, handkerchiefs, which you associate with blood, with sweat, with tears. And I kind of thought, you know, Rosie um, McConville, she stitched the hems of, it was piecework. The, hem, the hankies were sort of sent out to homes in the parish. And Rosie, you know, stitched dozens, hundreds of handkerchiefs every week while the kids were at school or after they went to bed. And sometimes her younger sisters would help her. And I say it was, you know, it was sweated labor. It was pocket money. It was pocket handkerchief money. It wasn't enough to live on. It was something that a woman could do because the man was earning whatever money. And then whatever they earned was just kind of, you know, a little bit of cream on top. You know, you couldn't live off the the labor and um, the money that was paid for that labor. Um, and then you kind of think, obviously, of, you know, Bishop Edward Daly and his handkerchief on Bloody Sunday. But also um, the Kearns brothers, when they were being buried, the priest, I interviewed him years later, and he remembered um, a handkerchief falling out of his sleeve onto one of the coffins, which kind of woke him from a trance, trance and he kind of realised the enormity of what he was doing, like burying not just one son, but two, and the, the massive yawning grave to accommodate two coffins. And then I come across on social media, somebody posting from the Guards Museum in London, just down from Buckingham Palace, 
and it's um, a tribute, a memorial to Robert Narak, and it's a handkerchief that he was found in his possessions after his disappearance when he was, you know, kidnapped and murdered by the IRA. But the linen handkerchief that he had was a UVF handkerchief, which had been sort of, you know, stitched and embroidered probably in Longkesh by, you know, UVF members with, you know, with UVF symbols and and drawings. And you kind of think, you know, what was he doing with that handkerchief? It wasn't a trophy from somebody that he had arrested. You know, the suspicion is that it was something that was given to him as a kind of um, uh, a thank you or whatever by by people that he was consorting with. So, you know, that's a sobering thing. Well, Martin, thank you very much for taking the time today. It's a magnificent achievement, the book, and, you know, you've given voice to a lot of people who otherwise might not have had a voice. So, you know, it's testament to your empathy and skills as a writer that you've projected those stories and given them the space that they deserve. Thanks very much, Gareth. Appreciate that. Yeah, as I said, Martin, I I, I did enjoy the book. As, as uncomfortable as it was in, in bits, it cer- certainly um, evoked a some memories, but thoughts about how we go forward, how we how we learn from the past and move away from it, but yet remember those that we're leaving behind and, and give them the place and the space that they require. So, Martin, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you, Sam. Appreciate that too. Bye night. Cheers.